to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. This is our first ever episode, so we are going to have to ask that you bear with us while we make a bit of a hash of the technology, fumble over our words or whatever it might be. Um, but we're generally hoping that at least our first episode won't scare too many listeners away. Every week we're going to be doing a deep dive into recent family law cases that Maddie and I found interesting. We'll share our favourite book, talk, podcast recommendations and we'll generally just be having a bit of a chat about the law in a way which we hope is fun and engaging. But disclaimer, it might not be. Our first segment is called, Did You See on Bailey? We will work on the names. Sorry about that, yeah. guys. <laughs> yes, listeners, in this part of the show, Maddie and I are going to tell each other about a case that recently caught our eye that the other person hasn't read. Think of it as story time for nerds. So, Maddie, what have you seen on Bailey? So, the case I'm going to tell you about today is, um, it was published in February 2021, and it's called XX and YY, sorry, XX and XY, that's a good start, Um, and it was heard before Mr Justice Peel in the Birmingham Civil Justice Centre. It is about overlaying. Now, when I say overlaying, do you know what I mean by that? I didn't until I asked you right before we started, so tell me again. So overlaying is the concept of co-sleeping in a bed with your baby. So parents will often sleep in a bed with their child. And overlaying is when you apparently roll over the child or restrict their movement or breathing in some way that results in injury to the child. It's really common in family law. So we see it a lot in family and criminal law. But interestingly, I think about overlaying, and it's it's explored in quite some depth in this particular case, is that it's not very well supported by the literature, the idea that overlaying is inherently dangerous or causes fractures or um, death. So just quickly before I get into this case, the threshold obviously under Section 31 is risk of significant harm or has suffered significant harm due to the care attributed to the parents. And the idea of co-sleeping and overlaying cases is that it very, very few times tends to be intentional. Obviously, it's a concept of negligent parenting that results in injury to the child because of them falling asleep while feeding the child or them sleeping in the bed with the child without an appropriate cot. That means the child is sleeping in the wrong position. So it's one of those cases with a huge amount of medical evidence. But what the medical evidence in this case says is that the child, it was a little baby who had a number of rib fractures. What the doctors say quite clearly to the court is that the fractures, both sets of them, there are sets on both sides, could have been caused by co-sleeping, therefore overlaying, but there's absolutely no medical literature to support that concept. So what they say is that actually co-sleeping is something that you really only see in family courts or criminal courts. That's what the experts tend to say. So for example, at paragraph 105 of the case, just before we get into the facts, The eighth and ninth posterior rib fractures, of course, could not have been caused by CPR. The doctor, who's giving evidence at this time, agreed that the suggestion of overlay between two adults or an adult and a surface does not have any published medical literature to support it, but pointed out that in criminal and family courts, overlay has been found to be causative of fractures, although he did not mention it on such case in which he gave evidence is re-ABC. 
the doctor said the presence of alcohol and drugs increases the risk of overlay. So it's this concept of something that the family courts is very comfortable with, but the doctors tend to not agree with, that there's this idea that overlaying or co-sleeping causes injury to the child. So in this particular case, you've got two parents who are very young, mum's about 20, I think dad's about 21. Their second child, who is actually named in the judgment as a child called Mark, I don't know whether that's his real name, I imagine probably not. Mark was their third child, sorry, second child, um, two were born after he died. And what happened was the parents went to bed one night. This was the initial report. The parents went to bed one night, woke up routinely every two hours to feed baby Mark. Um, by about 6 a.m., mum is woken up by dad shouting that the child has died overnight and that he says he found him in his Moses basket and he was blue and, and had died. CPR was attempted, um, but he had been dead for quite some time. And so the child very sadly had passed away. So the court was tasked with finding out what had happened to him and whether the parents were in any way to blame for what had happened to him. It's a very long judgment. I think it's really worth reading for anyone who does any kind of non-accidental injury case because it sets out the law really um, in a lot of detail, especially this point about overlaying and co-sleeping, which is not something that we really see in the medical literature. Eventually, what the court finds is that the parents had been untruthful about a number of elements of that evening. The first area was that they had been smoking a significant amount of cannabis that night before Mark went to sleep and potentially during the night, although it's unclear. And that led them, of course, to become more sleepy and become less able to um, meet their baby's needs over the course of the night during which Mark died. The court says that because of that, the parents' ability to respond to Mark's cues and uh, Mark's needs was was significantly diminished and what most likely happened according to the court is that the father got up in the night to feed the child he fed him while sitting on the bed with his back against the wall and fell asleep with the baby in the bed and at some point during the night his airways head and body was restricted to such an extent that he died an interesting feature, though, is that the parents also had their bedroom extremely warm. So their thermostat was set to 27 and a half degrees, which is a very, very high temperature. And they were sleeping under a 13 and a half tog duvet. And what the judge finds is that the parents had consumed alcohol, sorry, had consumed cannabis and were less responsive to Mark's needs than they should have been. The room was very hot and airless. A smell of cannabis pervaded the atmosphere and the bed was small. A microenvironment rich in carbon dioxide and poor in oxygen was created. During the night for a number of hours, the upper part of Mark's body, including part or all of his head, was covered by one or both of his parents' bodies. He was unable to roll away. He was unable to lose heat through his head and probably absorbed more heat. His airway was obstructed and the flow of oxygen interrupted. The cranial damage may have contributed to a rapid deterioration, but was not the primary cause. Respiratory and or cardiovascular failure followed. As a result, he lost consciousness and died. And what the court goes on to say in relation to the parents' blame or negligence in relation to this very sad incident is that both parents largely ignored the sleep safe advice and both parents, I regret to say, carry blame. Whilst I have separated out my analytical conclusions in respect to the fractures and the death of Mark, they must be seen together as part of the totality of the evidence. In the end, this was a tragic event, not caused deliberately by the parents, but a direct result of their failure to protect, in particular by one, bringing Mark into their bed and exposing him to co-sleeping and the risks of overlay, and two, consuming alcohol and cannabis, which reduced their capacity to care for Mark and respond to his needs 
and three, allowing a hot, airless and cannabis-filled atmosphere to envelop the room. Their actions fell far short of the standard of care to be reasonably expected of them. So very sad, but also very interesting in terms of this idea of creating this kind of perfect storm of conditions that led to the death of a child and the fact that the parents are not blameless in that. Whilst it is technically an accidental injury in the sense that the parents obviously did not intend to cause such a level of harm to their child, their actions when taken together contributed quite significantly to his loss of life. So I thought that was a pretty interesting one. What do you think? Anything spring to mind on that? It's really tragic, isn't it? Um, what I find as a family lawyer, and I don't know if you feel the same way because we're both very young, we both don't have children, obviously. Is, yeah. yeah. I say obviously because we're, um, we're so embarrassing generally in the way we speak, it's quite obvious we don't have children. And I come across these phrases like, overlaying that I've never heard of before and it's only when someone raises in care proceedings I think gosh are you really not supposed to do that um and it, it is a really really tragic case and honestly it fills me with a little bit of terror you know the prospect of parenting myself and you know obviously there is guidance available um that parents should be following but ultimately most parents are just trying their very best and it I, I do feel an awful lot of sympathy for these parents just imagine being in their shoes um, and knowing that that your actions, however unintentional, contributed to your child's death. I know, exactly. And I think there's something to be said. You see it a lot in these cases about the youth of the parents. So both of these parents, or at least I know definitely the mother, was a looked-after child when she was younger. And so there's this idea of her wanting so much to meet the needs of this child, but just failing to understand what was required. And it's incredibly sad. And the idea that if your bedroom is too hot, you might be putting your child at some significant risk, just doesn't register with people who don't have children um, but really throws into focus how much you have to think about your actions in totality all the time when you're caring for such a young child. There is some other complicating factors in the judgment such as Mark was very premature but he had been I think he was about three months at the age of his um, death so he had sort of recovered from his prematurity as it were by the time that he had died but obviously there are complicating factors but it's a very very sad case and I think uh, indicative of the idea that the best thing that parents can possibly do is listen to the advice that they're given and try and work constructively with the professionals as much as they can. And it just goes to show that you really um, have to be so careful and that the court has to sometimes task itself with making findings that are not necessarily supported by any medical conclusion, but are supported by the factual and circumstantial evidence as it appears to the court. So I thought that was quite an interesting feature as well. And I haven't read the judgment, but what? how did you find the tone of the judgment? Did you find that the judge was very sympathetic to the parents or, or was there a sort of attribution of blame in a, in a way that was quite accusatory? It's quite a long um, judgment, as I say, and the judge's view of the mother changes quite significantly throughout. She actually refused to give her evidence. So she starts her evidence, she gives her examination in chief, and then she starts to be cross-examined by the local authority barrister and about 10 minutes in she refuses to continue and the court gives her quite a lot of leeway they invite her back to court on a number of occasions they give her a meeting with an intermediary they make provision for her to give evidence in a room with her counsel or in her solicitor's offices or at home and the mother despite initially going along with some of these suggestions eventually states that she does not wish to give any more evidence and I think that that really changed the tone of the court towards her they they found that she perhaps was being intentionally withholding of evidence because she knew that there were things that she had said that were not true um, but the court was also sympathetic in the sense that it must have been so difficult for her to continually relive the period during which her very young son had died so 
it, it's a mixed bag in terms of impression of the parents, but the judge, as ever, I think is very measured. I wouldn't say as sympathetic as some of the judgments I've read about similar cases, but it's very clear that he has made these findings in totality of everything and very much taking into consideration the limitations of the parents. So I think it's a helpful judgment for anyone who does do NAI or is interested in NAI because of this idea of co-sleeping and overlaying, not necessarily something that we can prove medically, but something we certainly could prove uh, in the family courts. We'll put a link to that judgment in the show notes as well so that other people can follow up on it, um, as well as our Twitter handles and so on and so forth, so that you can contact us so that we can keep the conversation going uh, about that case and other things that we talk about in this episode. What have you got for me? Right. What I've got for you is a judgment that's been causing quite a lot of discussion on um, the Twitterverse. It's the judgment of District Judge Ellis in West Sussex County Council and A&B. And the citation for anyone who wants to look it up will be in the show notes, but it's 2020 EWFC B62. It's dated October 2020, but it only surfaced in the press as far as I can see last week, or certainly that's when I saw it. And the headlines, uh, so this is from The Guardian, two teenagers placed in foster care after weight loss plan fails. The male, two overweight teenagers are placed in foster care. um, And that's the general tenor of the headlines in respect of that case. So the case concerned two children, C, who was almost 17 years old, and D, his younger sister, who's 13. It was a final hearing in the local authority's application for care orders, and the care plan was one of long-term foster care. And it was accepted by everyone because C, the older child, is almost 17, practically speaking. He couldn't be forced into foster care if that was the order, if he doesn't want to, despite the court order. So the parents unsurprisingly opposed the plan of the local authority, but the Guardian supported it. Um, The only other observation I'd make about professionals involved is that there was an expert psychological report from a Dr. Van Ruyen, which from what I can see was completed pre-proceedings with the children. The concerns were around the children being severely overweight and the parents um, showing an inability on the local authorities case to help the children manage that. The local authority had been involved with this family for a really long time, since 2010, when C, the older child, was six. Um, And the concerns, long-standing ones around the children's weight, poor hygiene and the home conditions. And we can see from the judgment that there have been numerous interventions by the local authority, most of which the local authority said allowed for some short term improvement, but it, it wasn't sustained and we went back to square one again. We don't have much detail, I will say, about what those interventions are, and that would have been helpful to know. I appreciate that judges don't have the time to set out full chronologies, um, you know, from their bundle into judgments, but that would have been something, it's a criticism that's being levelled at this judgment as well. Has everything been tried? Have we really, you know, come at the conclusion that long-term foster care is the only option for these children? Is there something else that could have been done? And I think the judge could have addressed that more fully. Um, But anyway, both of these children are in the 99th percentile for their age, and that means that they can't be properly assessed in relation to their weight. Um, D had experienced health issues around a fatty liver, and C had been told he's at risk of type 2 diabetes. And there's no suggestion in the judgment, as far as I can see, that the children had any pre-existing condition or genetic predisposition to putting on weight. 
So when the matter first came before the court, the local authority actually applied for interim care orders that was refused and the court granted interim supervision orders. So throughout these proceedings leading up to the final hearing, the children had remained at home with their mum. Uh, the parents were separated, but amicable. The children's weight had not reduced at all since the proceedings began in December 2019. And actually their weight had increased during proceedings. So the social worker said in her evidence that although the children's weight was the primary concern, this wasn't a one issue case. The children had suffered neglect because of poor home conditions and a lack of guidance on their personal care, which had resulted in them being bullied at school and in having low self-esteem. Their weight had steadily increased even during proceedings. She also raised concerns that the parents didn't seem to understand the seriousness of the local authority's concerns. So for instance, during a home visit, she found packets of crisps, tubs of ice cream, fizzy drinks in the home. And even if that was just for mum's consumption, she wasn't modeling good behavior for the children was a local authority's case. And the local authority also said that the children had failed to engage consistently in exercise, despite them providing Fitbits, paying for gym membership, um, and that their attendance, the family's attendance at Weight Watchers had been inconsistent. I should say this was disputed by mother who was saying that she couldn't explain why the children weren't losing weight because they were sticking to healthy eating and exercise plans. They were going for walks every day and they had attended Weight Watchers other than on a few occasions. Apart from the physical element, there's also some degree of concern around the children's emotional well-being. The social worker said that Dee, the younger child, had been a depressed little girl for some time. And this is really concerning. In Dee's room, um, there was a note and a bottle of pills marked my overdose tablet so that I can kill myself. So this was provided by mother at the beginning of the hearing. The suggestion obviously being that that suicidal ideation was brought on by the stress of the proceedings. Well, the judge noted that the children had actually expressed unhappiness in their discussions with the psychologist, which was pre-proceedings. I think that's another gap in the judgment which would have been helpful to plug, is that we know there was a psychological assessment with the children, but we don't know very much about it. We know that the court relied on it. Um, we know the court was concerned about the children's presentation in, in those discussions with um, the psychologist, but we really don't know very much more than that, which isn't terribly helpful. Ultimately, the judge concluded that the balance fell against the status quo. And in particular, the judge didn't consider that there was any real prospect of change. I'm going to read out the paragraph, which I thought was particularly um, interesting. If I look at the risks on the other side, the risks of not making any change in circumstances, the major risk is that I don't consider there are any prospects of change. I don't accept the fact that DNC may not have put on weight in recent months is any evidence of green shoots. It's hugely concerning that weight gain has continued even under the focus of these proceedings. And I'm satisfied if the children remain in the family home, they will either continue to put on weight or that their weight will remain at these exceptionally high levels. I cannot overstate how serious I consider that these risks are to their physical and emotional health. I don't accept what was said on behalf of the parents that if the children remain with them, and that further support is provided by way of parenting courses and therapy for the children, that this will stand any prospect of success. This is the case where so much help has been given to the family over the years, which must have included elements of parenting support, and where the children have been receiving support in some fashion or another from the social workers, family home workers and their schools. I agree with the mother. I can't see what else can be done in this case to affect change in the family environment and to agree to this proposal would just be condemning this family to more of what they've endured over the years since 2010. Social work involvement, attempts at improvement, short-lived improvements and no sustained change. 
The judge also makes it a point of saying that they aren't attributing moral blame in the case, but the issues go beyond, for them, appearance and lifestyle, and the driving factor is ultimately the children's health. Now, this was a case that made me feel uncomfortable, um, and I don't have a settled view on the rightness or wrongness of it, but what I've tried to do is ask myself questions about what it is that really unsettles me about the case. So what, it is, what is it about eating and food and obesity and being overweight that we reject in a way that we wouldn't other forms of neglect? Because I don't know, is there any dispute that this is a form of neglect, that the children's physical health is, has deteriorated to such a point that they have these really, really serious health risks um, on, the, on the horizon, certainly as they enter adulthood? You know, if a child was turning up inappropriately clothed for the weather or dirty or soiled or unwashed, we would call that neglect. But what is it about this particular form of neglect or obesity and overeating that we see as a lifestyle choice that shouldn't warrant state intervention in the same way as those other forms of, um, of parenting? Or, or certainly we don't see it as something that would warrant the removal of a child in the same way as those other forms of neglect might. The other question that, that bothers me is had the children not been removed, given the history of local authority intervention, what would the alternative have been? you know, it's precisely what the judge said. If they stayed at home, it would have been the same thing over and over again. I mean, C, the, the older child has already aged out um, of this process anyway. You know, he's going to turn 17 soon enough. So his entire life, certainly from the age of six, has been local authority involvement. Um, and that's that's not any sense of normal upbring upbringing for any child at all. So what would have been the alternative that we just have more intervention probably short periods of sustained change and then we're back exactly where we were again. Should the state have backed off entirely, written these children off, absolved themselves of any responsibility? It's another question that I'm sort of asking myself. One of the points made by the mother in this case was that she couldn't control what the children did in school or when they're not in her care, but she had spoken to them about the need to eat healthily. And I was talking about this case with a friend of mine who's also a barrister, but not a family barrister. And she was saying, well, you know, is there a bit of a legal fiction here about the amount of control a parent exerts over a child and how much responsibility can be attributed to them? And it's certainly true, Maddie, that you and I will see this in court all the time where mm. a parent says, actually, some part of this is the child's fault. They will be seen saying you're lacking insight, you're attributing blame to the child. Um, you know, you should take responsibility for yourself as a parent. But, you know, as a child at 13 and 16, is it true that to a certain extent they are responsible for their own behaviours? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable about that as well because ultimately they are children and children model the behaviours of their parents. Well, that's what I would think. So that's something that is, is, is floating around in my thought processes on this case. And then the last thing, uh, which is, is quite interesting. So Fatima Adash, who's an academic, um, posted about this case on Twitter and she called it shocking and awful, says it sets a really dangerous precedent. And I commented on her post and said, you know, I've only read the judgment briefly and I don't have a settled view, but it troubles me that one child has these really severe health issues, they're being bullied, one child is suicidal, you know, all of those things are something that we have to think about. And her view was that, you know, it's not for the state to interfere in a situation such as this one. Interference clearly hasn't worked. So what will more interference do? which I think is a fair point and, and one that's repeatedly raised in the proceedings by the parents. We don't know whether foster care is going to bring about the change that we hope to see in these children. Um, you know, we know the outcomes for children in long-term foster care and perhaps we're being overly optimistic about what can be achieved in foster care. 
But she goes on to say that there's a deeper issue here, which is that problems such as obesity and many other problems are social problems. And the neoliberal logic that tries to solve social problems at the individual level by responsibilizing people in this way, A, doesn't work, and B, marginalizes the marginalized and only paper maches the structural problems. Now, I think that's a really interesting point. The thing is, I don't disagree with much of that. I do think that decision-making in the family courts doesn't take place in a vacuum, and that law is ultimately a system like any other which reflects societal prejudices in many ways. I mean, Fatima notes that these sorts of stories seem to always target working class and or BAME families. Um, and anecdotally, I think that's a fair criticism. Realistically, it is marginalized communities who tend to fall under the social care radar. And that's not because middle class families are immune from the same issues, but they have the social capital to navigate the system and fall under the radar. But I do think there's a tension between Malvika with my hat on as someone who's left wing and wants to affect change and challenge systems of oppression, and Malvika the family lawyer, who is looking at the situation on the ground, the child protection risks to these children. Um, and it's not something that I can easily reconcile. It's a bit of a clumsy analogy, but, you know, for example, children who are removed from victims of domestic abuse, Malvika, lefty lawyer activist, would say, okay, well, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens within a system that doesn't protect victims of domestic abuse, doesn't offer them adequate support. Um, and this is outrageous. But then family lawyer Malvika thinks, but, you know, ultimately, there's a child here who is experiencing the effects of an abusive relationship that their parent, usually their mother, is unable to leave. So how do you, you know, how do you shy away from the child protection concerns whilst knowing that those don't manifest within a vacuum? What do you think? I think all of what you've said is really sensible. And I think this case is a really good example of the tension that exists in child protection law, basically, because the point that you raised about whether foster care will make a difference and whether the these children are really going to see sustained change ever I think applies to every single child protection case I think unless you have a very clear-cut case of example of one parent physically abusing one of the children and if they are removed that will stop you very rarely see sustained change of children this age when they go into into care it's just it just doesn't happen and I think what the court has to do is and what they've done in this case is is weigh the balance between the physical and lifestyle harm that is caused by their continuation of living the lifestyle they're living with their parents versus the significant emotional harm of being separated from their parents. I mean, these are very old children, children who are nearly adults and are being removed from their parents who are the only caregivers they have known and who they will always know have been their parents. So in any case, I think where you have older children, there's such a tension between are we even doing the right thing? Does it even matter if this is the right thing? Because these children are going to be so affected by being removed from their parents. And I don't think there's any way around that. I think, as you say, for me as well, it's a real tension between the kind of, I say, this quote unquote libertarian approach of families need to stay together and we should do everything we can to keep families together and separating children from their parents is terrible. And the care system is terrible. I mean, we know that a separate point to how you and I practice, but it's a terrible system. Um, in a lot of ways. So how can we possibly say that children who are removed from their parents are ever going to do better than children who aren't? And that's just an inherent tension in, in the system. And I think, as you say, you have to approach it with, you, with the right hat on, depending on what you're talking about. We as lawyers have to weigh the evidence depending on who we're acting for and depending on where the evidence is about whether this is the right thing to do, whether politically I think it's the right thing to do is a slightly separate point. And I also would say that with a case like this where 
it's obesity, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not significant emotional harm. I mean, these children, there, there is an emotional element to this eating, right? To this being overweight, potentially. It's done as a form of self-harm. A lot of the time is how it's expressed is that the children are unhappy and are, are harming themselves by consuming so much food or whatever it might be that's bad for them. If it, if it was a child that was cutting themselves or a child that was, was undergoing significant emotional harm in that sense, suicidal, as one of these children in fact was, we wouldn't say it's not significant harm. We wouldn't say it's not something that the court needs to look very seriously at. And I think it's the libertarian idea that the, the state should just step away because nothing will change. I don't think I do agree with actually. I think there needs to be, I, I sort of believe in an interventionist state. I believe in the power of the state to improve people's lives. Um, whilst leaving them to to their own devices as much as possible. But I think there is a, a scope here for education and for parenting help. And I don't doubt that the local authority will do everything they can to keep the children in as normal environment with their parents as possible. But it's a difficult one, you know, and I think I was reading, I saw it come out on Twitter. I hadn't read it before you just told me about it, but I saw that this is not the first time this has happened. I think it was in 2016 there was a report published that said that 15 councils up and down the country had put obese children into care because they were obese and it's a real problem I mean doctors are, are up in arms about it I think the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health were saying that obesity in children is an enormous issue and the effect of being overweight as a child carries continuing risks of you know heart disease diabetes all of these things which are physical harm to a child and so we can't look at that lightly. We can't look at it as any different to other things that cause physical and emotional harm to children. And the definition of harm is very, very wide. So I think it's maybe a sort of John Stuart Mill harm argument. You know, where where is the least harm? How do we reduce harm for these children whilst maintaining their emotional welfare? And I think in a case like this, it's very, very difficult because of their age and because of the nature of the threshold. How do you have an outcome that is minimal harm? And I think the court's done their best in this situation, whether they were right or not, will remain to be seen, I think we can't be confident whenever we come to a final hearing and we're for a local authority and we're saying it's patently in this child's best interest to put them in foster care as an alternative to them staying at home um and you know everyone knows the headley comments in riel about you know this we're, we're not in the the business of social engineering and that the court should be able to tolerate very diverse standards of parenting we know all of that but i wonder if underlying all of that is a little bit of dishonesty about what the care system is actually like do we know enough about the lived experiences of children in long-term foster care or are we relying too heavily on kind of trite commentary about this just being in their best interests and i don't have the answer to that and i think it's something that probably we're uncomfortable about in every single care matter we're in yeah and i think it feeds back actually to the case i was telling you about because it's a similar issue in the sense that the parents until the case came to court in my case for fact finding on the death of their child the parents had not told anyone that they were smokers of cannabis no one knew and no one had reason to suspect that they were smokers of cannabis they just were and hadn't told anyone and what the judge has to do in that case and as you say in the phrase in um re b i think lord wilson where he says we must be willing to tolerate very diverse standards of parenting it's known that we don't take children into care because their parents smoke cannabis we don't take children into care because their parents fight we don't take children into care because their parents are drinkers it has to be more than that and so I think it's I would caution anyone who's looking at these obesity cases as well the state takes children into care because they're obese you know that that's not what it is and the, the court is very well reminded constantly by any 
threshold decision that I've seen of the words of Lord Wilson and Ruby, where he makes it so clear that significant harm is fact specific and has to retain the breadth of meaning that human fallibility may require of it. You know, we are not in the business of removing children whose parents do things we don't like. It has to be more than that. And sometimes you have to read the whole case or you have to look at all the evidence to get a real understanding of that. But, you know, whether or not the system always succeeds at doing that is a, is a slightly different point. I don't doubt that there have been errors. And I think there have been some significant errors in the particularly the 80s and 90s that led to more harm being sustained in foster care by institutionalised sexual abuse than ever would have been sustained if they'd remained in the parents' care. And you've got the tort cases to prove that. So I think it's really difficult. And whether we need, we as family lawyers need to do more to understand the nature of the care system and try and work out exactly where the harm of potential removal lies rather than just oh they'll miss their family it's like might be more than that maybe it's something that we'll see in, in coming years I don't know I would hope so next up we're going to have a general chat about books podcasts or talks that we've seen recently that really stuck with us we don't have a fun name for that um segment yet listeners so if you do think of one let us know because we can't just keep calling it general chat about books podcasts or talks that we have seen recently maddie have you spotted anything of interest in the twitterverse or elsewhere i have been listening to a podcast called the immaculate deception have you heard this whoever came up with the podcast title should come up with titles for our segments well, yeah, but then I thought actually it should have been called the Conception Deception, which I think would have been better. But anyway, it's about a Dutch doctor who ran a fertility clinic in Holland, which was, to all intents and purposes, a miracle clinic. I think it was open from the 1990s to 2009. And women would come who had previously been unable to have any children and unable to conceive with their partners or husbands. They would come for not IVF, as it were, but sort of insemination of sperm into the women to get them pregnant and it came out years later after the clinic had closed that the doctor who ran the clinic was the sperm donor so he had fathered thousands of children um, that these women had come to him for help for and they're now all over Holland, Germany, all over Eastern Europe are children of this doctor who had used his own sperm to impregnate these women now legally I think it's incredibly interesting I'm very interested in in artificial insemination and artificial reproductive technology as you know you can read my article in the family law journal February and January 2021 about it um but it's I think from a sort of legal perspective it's incredibly interesting because there's the idea of consent whether if you consent to a sperm donor who you don't know you've consented to it being someone else entirely whether that person then has any parental claim over those children although this doctor never actually made any claim he just was the dad and left it at that and also this idea of kind of bodily integrity if you agree to a certain procedure are you agreeing to the consequences of that procedure etc so I thought it was it's a really entertaining podcast anyway just morally and factually it's really interesting about the uh, the number of children that this guy has fathered and how why he did it you know it's really not clear from the podcast yet and I've not actually finished it yet I think I'm on the fourth episode um, but it's really not clear whether this guy is just a narcissist and wanted hundreds of children, whether he it was a quick way to make money because he didn't have to pay the sperm donors, whether it was an exercise in I can do this, so I will, a sort of power trip, or whether it was done for a more malicious purpose. You know, maybe he got a kick out of it. Maybe he he was doing something more sinister. I don't think there's any evidence of rape or sexual assault particularly, but obviously the sperm that he was using was not the sperm he told the women he was using. 
so I thought that was really interesting. And I think for anyone who wants a little idea of all the potential ethical, moral, legal, tortious implications that artificial insemination brings up, listen to it because it touches on all of them. And you've also then got this complicating factor of there are hundreds of people across Holland, Germany, Eastern Europe who are now related and didn't know they were related and only found out through this one DNA test that linked them all together. And they're all brothers and sisters or they're all half brothers and half sisters, which is pretty horrifying, right? You know, when you think about incest, and I, I think we should do an episode on incest at some point because there's question mark victimless crime stuff. But um, this idea that, you know, you could be in a relationship or friends or married to someone who you are 50% related to, pretty scary. And that's why we have regulations on who fathers children when and who gives birth to children when and stuff like that. So it's quite interesting and I would really recommend it. I think it's a really interesting and fun kind of entertaining rundown of, of artificial insemination. I've been reading, I don't know if you've read it, it's um, Tim Cavan's Baby Barista Files, Lawn Disorder Confessions of a Pupil Barrister. Have you read it? No, I've only read the Alex McBride one. Oh, Defending the Guilty. Yeah, I read that to you a really long time ago when I was probably applying uh, to uni for a law degree. Um, but it's a very Hunger Games-esque take on pupillage. And the protagonist is called Baby B and is one of four pupils at a fictional set in London that specialises in civil law, personal injury, that kind of thing. And it's a satirical take uh, of what life is like at the baby bar. And all the characters have names which give you a bit of an idea of what they're about you know for example top first is this unbearably pompous oxbridge grad um, and baby b's main competitor for tenancy um, now i very much hope that there's no one who's listening to this podcast who's stooped to the levels that baby b does to try and get tenancy and i won't spoil it for anyone by telling you whether or not he does get tenancy uh, but i'll read an extract from it which i think is quite funny um, and it tells you a little bit about the the tone of this book Friday, 3rd of August, 2007, day 214, sweatshop. Word has it that despite the fact that the inns of court are currently crawling with many pupils, there are many candidates who are still struggling to get work placements. Half as a joke, half serious, I decided to post the following on a couple of internet bulletin boards the other day. Pupil Barrister offers informal mini pupillage based at Inner Temple Library. Good reference guaranteed. I've already had 10 applications and so I'm conducting interviews in the library this evening. Little did I know that I'll take them all on for the next month and get them each to do some research on my behalf for a different member of chambers I'm trying to impress. Best of all, forget the minimum wage. This work comes for free. Oh, um, God. Really, really, really funny. And I think there's another book in the series as well, which I'm going to try and um, buy at some point. But also I caught up yesterday on Mary Rachel McCabe at Doughty Street, her in conversation with Rachel Francis and Joanna Fleck, who are the co-founders of Claiming Space, and they've just written a book on vicarious trauma and burnout in the legal profession. It was really, really interesting. Uh, Rachel and Joanna talked about how they'd done interviews with barristers, solicitors, paralegals, people across the profession about burnout, about vicarious trauma, and there were some very powerful accounts that were read out during the talk. Um, the part of the conversation that really resonated with me was around guilt. And I, and I think that we will definitely feel that in the area of practice that we're in and given our politics, but constantly feeling like there's more you can do for your mm. clients, for society and feeling like if you... I'm never doing enough. That's how I constantly feel. I've never, ever done enough. Even a resounding victory, I'm like, that wasn't good enough. Like, yeah. I need to do more. Yeah. 
And if you stop working at any point, you feel bad because you're like, you know, that I shouldn't be rest- resting on my laurels, you know, and, you, and if you mm. want to complain because you're feeling overwhelmed, you feel like you can't complain because as bad as you have it, you have it nowhere near as bad as your clients. So I think that, you know, I've definitely often felt, you know, when you're re- repeatedly exposed to something that's very traumatizing and that comes with the territory of what we do, it is very affecting and it, I do sort of go numb And I imagine it's even worse for solicitors because they don't even have a professional barrier between them and their clients. But, you know, if I feel overwhelmed and I feel like I should ask my clerks to ease up on my workload or I can't take up this pro bono case, even though the client's really vulnerable, I feel awful because I can't help. um, And I feel guilty for not doing more. um, And I I feel like I have to back away from campaigning or Twitter or activism then I feel guilty for being privileged enough to be able to take a step back when other people don't have that privilege. So I think that that was something that really resonated with me. I have ordered the book. Um, I'll have a read of it. I'll probably discuss it in the next episode. Yeah, do. That would be amazing. I think it's certainly something I don't really tend to think about. I mean, you do a lot more work about mental health and well-being at the bar than I do. And I think that's something that I certainly should well I I I listen as much as I can. I try not to talk too much about it because it's not something I can actually say has affected me specifically but I think the idea like you say of the area of law that we do it's an exposure really to the worst behavior of people to the people that they're meant to love and that is very very difficult and it's constant it's an onslaught especially at our level you know you're having cases that I never would have imagined would have people would have done to each other when I was at law school wanting to be a family barrister so this idea of kind of emotional exhaustion and uh, there's only so much more I can take of learning how people are to each other in their worst phases of their life and and then you think oh I'm such a horrible person for thinking that you know these people are going through things that are so much worse than I've ever been through so it's a horrible entanglement of sort of guilt and duty and wanting to do your best whilst knowing that you'll never have it as bad as your clients it's a really horrifying combination but I think the fact that people are even talking about it more now, especially across the wider bar, I think is really important because whilst what we do is different to what, you know, commercial or human rights or tax barristers do, the idea that you're there for your clients and your clients come first, I think resonates with all barristers. And it's it's a very difficult tension sometimes to reconcile your own needs with the needs of your clients. And then you feel like very guilty for doing so. So yeah, let me know what you think of the book. I'd be really interested to hear. Before we just round things off, obviously our last segment is called Tweet of the Week, which again, we'll probably work on misnomer because we do actually publish fortnightly. So it's actually Tweet of the Fortnight, um, but that's not as good. So Malvika, your Tweet of the Week, please. So my Tweet of the Week is from Maximilian Hardy, and it is, marking pupillage applications in 2021 is very, after I won the Nobel Prize, I finished I'm going to completely mispronounce this. I don't even know if this is a word. My epic Old Norse trilogy to be adapted for film starring Benedict Cumberbatch. What happened to can hold my own in a pub dispute and did a bit of debating at school. Very true, Max. Very true. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, we are talking in pupillage season right now. So to anyone who's getting pupillage interviews, uh, rejections, second rounds, congratulations or commiserations as it fits. The rejections come first, they'll stop first. So you'll get there, I'm sure. Remember that you only need one, you don't need more than one. I have not had time to compile my tweet of the week. So I just wanted to take a second to obviously pay tribute to Sarah Everard, which has been consuming my Twitter feed for the last week. 
I think we can both agree that for us as sort of young women, it's a really horrifying story. And it really resonated with me because I lived down the road and it was a horrifying tale of the fact of women are dangerous wherever they go. Well, sorry, women are in danger wherever they go. Um, and there's really nothing that we can do to make ourselves feel safer at times like this. So huge commiserations to Sarah's family. Um, my thoughts are so very much with you. Um, and I thought it was a really, really sad story. But thank you to all the women who came together to make us feel better on the TL for a little bit of time. Um, I think it certainly cheered me up to see women having the discussions about how they can make themselves feel safe and asking men to make them feel safe. Um, so thank you everyone for that. Yeah, we also want you to be able to take some meaningful action so we can signpost you to some organisations that combat violence against um, women and girls so that you can try and make your money go a little bit further for a good cause. Uh, yes, and on that, I would also say that both Malvika and I work for the Centre for Women's Justice, which is doing really good work in um, access for justice for women in family and other areas of the law. So if you're interested in what they do, um, you can also donate on their webpage. So shout out to you guys. So that's it for this week's episode of Professionally Embarrassing. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, podcast name aside, we hope we didn't actually ruin our careers or embarrass ourselves too much this time around. Um, and I hope that you'll tune in next time. And like I said, we're going to put our Twitter handles in the show notes, as well as other resources arising out of things that we've discussed in this episode. Please do tweet us your thoughts um, and any ideas you have for the next episode, which will come out on Monday uh, in a fortnight. And follow us, like us, subscribe. I don't really know what the uh, norm is for podcasts, but do whatever you can so that we are popular and people like us. Um, but until next time, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye.